Chad's out of town, so um, of course, he asked me to, uh, to speak on something that um, is a little scary. It's a subject that falls near and dear to every one of our hearts. And this morning, I want you to understand that everything that comes out of this and goes into your heart and your mind this morning is not my idea, okay? Don't blame me. (laughs) The Christian life is not easy, is it? The Christian life is not for the faint of heart. Think about that for a minute. Jesus said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you, right? John 16, Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation, right? Expect it. It's going to happen. It's part of this life. I love James. James is the, the one wisdom literature book in the New Testament. And James starts off his letter to us saying, consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter what? Various trials, right? The Christian life is not for the faint of heart. I love those people that say, oh, you know, God, that's such a crutch. You can't get through life, you need God, what a crutch. They have no comprehension whatsoever of what it means to be a believer. The Christian life is not easy. And some of the things I need to talk to you about this morning are not easy either, but they're necessary. So I want you to strap in because this is going to be a little bit of a ride. And I want to pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, I'm so glad this is your idea, not mine. Father God, you know my heart in this. And you know how it is passionate that we would understand who we are in you and who you are for us. And that the freedom that Jesus came to offer us is something that we could walk in and live in day in, day out, because it rises us above this world. It takes us to a place where all of the persecution, all of the trials, all of the tribulations pale in comparison. As Paul said, they pale in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. That's what I'm looking for this morning, Father God. I believe that's your heartbeat, and I believe, Holy Spirit, you are in this place this morning for that purpose and that reason. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you realize just what a blessing this church has in calling a man like Chad to be your pastor, to be your leader. I am right. I am right. I've been getting to know Chad over the last year or so. And know a little bit, of, uh, you know, up at New Life when we were up there, but not much. I've been getting to know him a lot better. And the more I know him, the more I am impressed with such a young man, his heart for you, for me, and for God. And man, we are blessed. Yes, Chad has been preaching for the last couple of weeks on evangelism, right? Why? Because his heart beats like God's heart beats. He wants to see us make an impact in Santa Maria. I want to continue that train of thought a little bit this morning, but to do it from a a slightly different perspective. I think we oftentimes get the wrong idea about evangelism. Uh, We see it as sharing the good news, and that's a good thing. And so we, we develop all of these ways of doing that. We have all these things to make it easier for us to do. The four spiritual laws. It's kind of an old one, but we still use it. The Roman road, the bridge. A lot of those, those different ways to, to kind of make it more palpable, to kind of make it a little less scary for us to do. All of those things have an outward focus. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is something very different You see, evangelism, witnessing, if you will, is actually most effective when it is lived, not just shared. The early church was known for a lifestyle as well as a message. The early church father 
Tertullian, reported that the Romans, the non-believing Romans, would exclaim about the Christians, see how they love one another. Their love was so pervasive that it rocked their world. I love the passage in Acts that says they, they turned the world upside down. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here. Chad talked about this idea of, of loving one another. That's where it begins. His vision is that we would be a church so deeply in love with one another that the city here would take notice. That there would be such a manifest presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst that bound us together in love and in power that not only could it not be contained, but that would radically impact our town. Amen. Folks, this is not a new concept. Sir. This is not a new teaching. It's Bible 101. John 13, 34 says, a new command I give you. This is Jesus' words to us. Love one another. Got that? Repeat after me. Love one another. As I have loved you. Oh, now it gets interesting. Love one another as I have loved you. Any idea what that might look like? So you must love one another. And really, here's the crux of it all, folks. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I love that conjunction. If. What a scary word. Tiny little word, a lot of import, kind of scary. It's always conditional, isn't it? They will know that we're his if, if we love one another. Peter said, love one another fervently from the heart. That is what we are called to. This idea is repeated over and over in the New Testament. Listen, we have to get this. And I know love happens here. I watched it happen this morning. Samuel connecting with these ants. Yeah. Love is happening in this place. It needs to happen more. It needs to be who we are and who we are known as. It's not, folks, optional. It's not a good suggestion. It's not a good idea, even. It's a command of Scripture. It's foundational to who we are. It's foundational to who we are supposed to be in Christ Amen. and for one another. So if all of that is true, and the Bible says that it is, then why are people not flocking to bust down the doors of our churches wanting to be a part of them? Why has our culture in mass abandoned the church and the fellowship of believers? George Barna does Christian polling. And George Barna poll indicates that on any given Sunday morning, only about 8 to 10% of those who profess to be believers, who profess to be Christians, are actually in attendance in church on a given Sunday morning. 8 to 10%. Why do our efforts of evangelism so often fall on deaf ears or worse yet, encounter disdain or opposition? Could it be that the world is waiting to see something different, something true, something more in keeping with the heart of God? Or maybe the better question is this, what is holding us back as the people of God from the love and the unity commanded in Scripture? What is holding us back from being known as a people who love one another fervently from the heart? Well, that really is what Chad asked me to talk about this morning. You've heard that God has a plan for your life, right? Yeah. Most of us can quote Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, right? Plans to what? Prosper you. Thank you, Samuel. To give you future and a hope, we understand the idea that God has a plan for us, and it is good, isn't it? Did you ever read the rest of that passage? Yeah. Hmm. There's where the ifs come in. 
Verse 12 says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Oh, 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 okay. There's a condition here, isn't there? When you seek me with all your heart, verse 14 says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. In other words, he's just waiting. He's waiting for you to come, put your heart on the line and say, I'm all yours. And when you do, you will find him there. But catch this, the end of that. And we'll bring you back from captivity. That's an interesting part. What does that mean? Yes, Jeremiah is talking to the people of Israel, but this applies to us too because we are grafted in according to the New Testament into the family of Israel, into Abraham's line. We are part of that Old Testament family. So this promise, conditions and all, belongs to us. This is the heart, in fact, of Jesus' personal mission statement when he came. You know, much has been said about why Jesus came and lived among us. We talk about the fact that Jesus came to die for us, right? That's well known. We teach about how Jesus came to live as an example for us to follow. I, I, I love the kenosis passage. That's Philippians chapter two, verse five through 11. The kenosis passage talks about that transference of Jesus humbling himself, moving from that position of deity to take on human flesh and become like us. It says literally that he set aside his godly prerogative to live like us. So you see, that way, all of those miracles that Jesus did, all of those prophetic things, all of the healings, all of that stuff, if he did them as God, then we have very little responsibility, if any at all, to follow in his footsteps because he was God. But he didn't. He gave up his godly prerogative, and he did him as a man rightly connected to God through the Holy Spirit. And guess what? As believers, you have access to all of that. You do. You have access. You can live as Jesus lived because of the Holy Spirit. It's a matter of submitting to it. It's a matter of being led and empowered by his Spirit. These things are true. But there is another aspect as to why Jesus came. And this one, he declares himself. It is his personal mission statement because it's his words about why he came. We ought to stand up and take notice. Luke chapter four, verse 18 and 19. Jesus is quoting out of Isaiah, but he's personalizing it too. He's saying, this is about me. He says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Again, he did everything through the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There are five distinct ideas in this statement, but they all come to the same thing. He's talking about your freedom. That's what he's talking. Through the whole statement, every one of these things is about your freedom. Why am I talking about this? Because it's foundational to where I want to go this morning. These five things about our freedom are what Paul summed up in the one statement in Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that you have been set free. It is for freedom that you have been set free. Jesus, folks, is passionate about our freedom. I'm not Chad, but I tell you what, Jesus is passionate about your freedom. At my age, that's probably not safe to do, but hey. I love it. He, he bounces all over this stage, doesn't he? <laughs> Jesus is passionate about your freedom. You know what? I'm passionate about your freedom, too. 
It's something my wife and I have been doing, helping people get free of the lies and wounds of their, their life for about a decade now. And we are passionate about that ministry. But you know what? I'm passionate about it for one reason. Jesus is passionate about it. Let's take a real brief look at this passage. The first thing that, that Jesus says is that he's anointed by the Spirit of God to preach good news to the poor. This is about our salvation, folks. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel, the good news that Jesus is talking about here, is about Jesus' death and resurrection that brings about our salvation and eternal life. It is about freedom from the penalty of sin and how it separated us from God. The good news is that Jesus did what had to be done and only he could do in order to restore our relationship with God. But his mission statement is even more than that. Look at the next part. He came to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Now, folks, that's not a political statement. Jesus, in his time, didn't set anybody free from prison. He's talking about freedom from the bondage of sin. This really has two aspects. First, it's freedom from sin running your life. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 6, called it being a slave to sin. Second, it's freedom to belong to God, to be united with Christ. Jesus didn't give us freedom removing that slavery to sin and then let us be. He also pointed us in a direction. It's one of the most important things about getting people free is that you don't just leave them there. You gotta give them a direction to go. You gotta give them a purpose and a plan. And God does that for us. He doesn't just release us. If he did, we'd have a lot of problems. You know why? Because people who got set free, and this can happen to anyone, but people who get set free without that vision for moving forward and without that relationship with God are what Jesus talked about when he talked about seven more spirits more nasty than the first come back and invade that person because the, the, the ground is clear. They can just move right in, right? Okay. He sets us free for freedom. Get that? We're set free. We're taken out of that for a purpose, for freedom. Freedom is about this, folks. It is about intimacy with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's about removing the lies and the wounds that keep us from enjoying the, our unity with God that we're supposed to have, that we were created and designed to have. The next part of this says, recovery of sight for the blind. Now, that's kind of a strange statement in the middle of all these freedom things, right? How is that part of freedom? Jesus healed people of a lot of physical things. In fact, in the Gospels, they tell us that he healed all, everybody say all, all their diseases. You know what? That's not a quantitative statement as much as it's a qualitative statement because the Gospels explain all of the different kinds of healings that he did, all of their diseases. So why, in this mission statement, does Jesus just talk about the blind? Well, notice what he says about it. He says, recovery. Your Bible may say restoration of sight. This is Jesus returning us to a previous condition, a condition where Adam walked and talked with God in the garden, where a personal encounter with God was actually possible, where intimacy with God could really happen. Remember, Jesus called the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, blind guides? Okay, that's what he's talking about here. There is a blinding that happens when we seek religion instead of relationship. I'm... I'm currently doing my, my master's work, a master's of divinity, and uh, I'm about a year into to this. And one of the things that I know about seminary and have known about seminary for quite some time is a lot of people go into seminary with high hopes, passionate about Jesus, passionate about ministry, passionate about what he's going to do in their life, and come out thinking, oh, what was I doing? I don't want anything to do with God. Seminaries are known for being cemeteries because they divest us of our faith in many ways. 
Religion, folks, is anything that you do habitually. It can be anything. I can be religious about watching football, right? Religion isn't about God, really. And it's certainly not what God planned for us. He planned for us to have an intimate, personal relationship with him, restored through the blood of Christ and maintained by his Holy Spirit. Day in, day out, his mercies are new every morning. I was raised in the church, Presbyterian church. We didn't talk about relationship with God. At the age of 16, a bunch of kids from Colorado invaded the little town I lived in, Morgan Hill, California. I actually didn't live there. I went to church there. I lived in South San Jose, went to church in Morgan Hill. Little Presbyterian church, Presbyterian Church of Morgan Hill. We didn't talk about Jesus like that, but these kids are full of the Holy Spirit. These kids had a personal relationship with God, and all of the youth groups in town were invited to participate for a week with these kids. 800 of them descended on a town of about 25,000 people. And so I was one of those youth group kids. Man, I was, I was totally into the youth group. We had a great youth group leader. He was a musician. I cut an album with him when I was 16 years old. I got involved with those kids. And I remember Scott Wesley Brown, you probably never heard of him, but he's kind of East Coast rock and roll gospel guy. He was, our, he was our worship leader for the week. He had just written a song that went viral called, I'm Not Religious, I Just Love the Lord. And man, that was like the centerpiece of what we did every day, okay? We just got in God's presence. And I found out very quickly, day one, with these kids, they had something I didn't have. They had a personal relationship with Jesus. It radically changed my life. I was never the same after that. I wanted so much more for my life because I wanted Jesus in my life. Uh, let's continue with this, this thought here. To release the oppressed, the captive, that's kind of, I was kind of captive in, in religion. There is a difference, folks, between prisoners and captives. Prisoners, I talked about prisoners. Prisoners are such because they've done something wrong. They've broken the law. Their condition as a prisoner is their own doing. Sin is our own doing. A captive, on the other hand, is someone who's had something done to them. They have been taken captive by the action of another. They are oppressed by someone or something, which is why your Bible may say, uh, the New King James says captive, NIV says oppressed. They were lied to by the enemy. And even though they know there should be more to this life in Christ, they don't know how to get there. They're being held against their will, and they don't know where or how to find the keys to their freedom. They are captives. They are oppressed. And Jesus is passionate about their freedom. He is passionate about their freedom. The last thing here, again, it's about freedom. The year of the Lord's favor. This is also known as the year of Jubilee. Anybody heard of the year of Jubilee? Yeah. The year of Jubilee happened every, quote, 49 years. It was a Sabbath's number of years. So it's seven times seven, come up with 49. Every 49 years, Jubilee would happen. According to Leviticus 25.8, in the year of Jubilee, slaves and prisoners would be freed, debts would be forgiven, and the mercies of God would be particularly manifest in the people. One of the more interesting parts about Jubilee is that land would refer back to its original owner. So if I was of the tribe of Benjamin and I purchased land over in Dan's area, the tribe of Dan, okay, 49 years later, 50, depending on, on the theologian you're talking to, it reverted back to Dan's possession. It went back to that tribe, okay? What Jesus is talking about here, quite literally, is the idea of fallen man being returned, reconciled to God. 
Basically, Jesus is saying that his presence marked a coming of God's favor in which and by which our freedom would be manifest and we would be returned to that previous state of relationship that Adam had with God in the garden, a state of relationship where intimacy could really happen. This, folks, is Jesus' mission statement. This is why Jesus says that he came. He came that we might be set free. It is why he lived. It is why he died. It is his plan for your life. Jesus' plan for your life is your freedom. Simple enough, right? Everybody, you're tracking with me. There's just one problem. God is not the only one with a plan for your life. According to Scripture, the enemy has a plan too. His plan is to kill, steal, and destroy. That's his job description, and that's his plan. All that Jesus lived and died to accomplish, Satan wants to undo in your life. He wants to kill your life in Christ. He wants to steal your freedom by making you a prisoner or a captive and to destroy your witness in this world, which, which starts with your love for one another. And that brings me to the heart of the matter this morning. The enemy's plan. That was my introduction. How much time do we have? Hmm. Okay. Satan has a tool that is alive and well in the church today. Jesus talks about it in the context of the, of the end times. Let me ask you, do you believe that we're living in the end times? Yes. Not much doubt about that, is there? Sure. Not really. We're living in the end times. You just read scripture. In fact, I want to do that with you right now. Matthew 24, starting in verse 4. This is Jesus talking about the end times. And Jesus answered them and said, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Some of your Bibles may say the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. There's three thens between verse 9 and verse 12. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Then many will be offended. Then many false prophets will rise up. Okay, I, wanna, I want you to see what Jesus is saying here. Start with verse 10. Many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. A couple of things. This is a progression, okay? It begins with offense, it moves to betrayal, and it results in hatred. An offended person, if the offense goes unforgiven, undealt with, will eventually move to betrayal, and if the betrayal is not dealt with, it will end in hatred. But that's not all. Jesus goes on to say that false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Who are the many? The offended. The offended are the many. What that should tell us is that offended people are prime targets for the deceptions of the enemy. When deception takes root, lawlessness will abound. What is lawlessness? Well, in the Greek, lawlessness is the word anomia. It means without law or lawless. Quite literally, it means that we become a law unto ourselves. At least in our hearts and our minds, we isolate ourselves. We may be present in the body of Christ, but we still back off. We isolate ourselves. Why? Because we've been hurt, and pain is pain, and it hurts, and we seek to protect ourselves. We don't like being hurt. No one does. Can't blame a person for not liking to be hurt. 
But listen, Proverbs 18, 19 says, a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. Now, in Solomon's day, what did a strong city have? Walls. Walls. Why did it have walls? To keep out the people who would hurt us, right? And that's exactly what we do in our own heart and mind. We put up walls. We put up walls. The problem with that is that the walls that we erect, we think are protecting us. And they're not. They're isolating us. They're setting us up for the deception of the enemy. And they allow our love to grow cold. That's that last part of the the verse. Your love will grow cold. And that's kind of an important part of the verse because it really defines who Jesus is talking about here. You see, the love word there in the Greek is agape. Most of you have heard that term before. Agape is used exclusively in the New Testament to represent the love of God toward us, our love toward God, or our love for one another within the body of Christ. It's never used of the world. This tells me that Jesus is not talking about the world here when he talks about many will be deceived, many will be offended. He's talking about believers. He's talking about those who have given their life to him. There will be a lot of believers in the end days that are offended walking around on the planet. There will be a lot of believers in the end days that are living in betrayal. There will be a lot of believers in the end days whose love has grown cold. There will be a lot of believers that fall into the trap of offense. It is what John Bevere calls the bait of Satan. He baits the trap by getting you offended so that you will separate yourself from the body of Christ. And when you do, those walls won't protect you. They won't protect your heart. They will isolate your heart. And in the end, you'll be open to the deception of the enemy and your love will grow cold. Say, well, Scott, but you don't know what that person did to me. You're right, I don't. But I know what's happened to me in my life and I can imagine it hurt. It's not a pretty picture, is it? But you know what? I'll go back to what I said before I started. I didn't say this, Jesus said it. So you're just gonna have to deal with it. It's tough stuff. I get that. I understand that. But keep this in mind. Jesus is passionate about our freedom. He's not going to pull punches so we can continue to live a life that is less than what he died to provide us. With that said, let's tackle this issue of offense. Many will be offended. You can drop offended people into two categories. Those who have been genuinely wounded genuinely hurt by someone else and those who think they have been genuinely wounded genuinely hurt by someone else they're deceived because well that person didn't mean the offense that happened but they took it that way the bottom line is this they're the same they're both offended right they're both dwelling in the same trap and satan's got a hold of them in the same way If you have been mistreated, do you have the right to be offended? If you have been mistreated, do you have the right to be offended? Now you're wondering, aren't you? What is this guy getting at? Let me clarify something here. You have the right to be whatever you want to be. You have the right to go to hell. And God will protect your right. Why? Because in his sovereignty, he gave you a free will to choose. And he will not violate his own sovereignty. You have the right to be anything you want. You even have the right to stop listening now, if you want. God gave you a free will. 
But back to the question, do you have the right to be offended? Do you have the right to live offended? No, I don't know how someone might have hurt you. But listen to this. A person living in offense is a person who has forgotten what they've been forgiven of. A person living in offense is someone who has forgotten what they've been forgiven of. When we live offended, we either don't remember or we don't understand what Jesus did for us. We've forgotten that it was our sin that put him on that cross. Folks, I'm not saying offense is easy. It's not. It hurts. What I'm saying is we cannot afford to live in that offense. The cost is just too high. Jesus says here that many will be offended. Many, polos in the Greek, comes from the root word pylon, meaning majority. You know what that tells me? That tells me that at least 51% of Christians in the last days will be living in offense. Maybe more. But we have a choice, don't we? Better than half will live offended. And because they live offended, they will betray the body of Christ and their love will grow cold. What does that mean? When we think of betrayal, usually we think of Judas, right? Yeah. Benedict Arnold, Judas, something like that. But let me kind of give you a better idea of what betrayal means. Betrayal is when we choose our own protection, our own walls, or our own benefit at the expense of someone with whom we have a relationship. Now, who hasn't done that? How many believers have you met that no longer attend church because of a misunderstanding or an offense that happened to them from another believer, another pastor, or whatever? How many... You know what? I've been a pastor a long time. I know so many people who have abandoned the church. We first moved to, to Santa Maria. We moved to plant a church here. I was sent by a church planting organization to Santa Maria to plant a church. Santa Maria was growing. It was a great place to plant a church kind of thing. I knew no one. What are called a parachute drop. They just, good luck, sink or swim. And I went door to door meeting people, just trying to, to get a foothold in the community, so to speak, just to invite people to think about coming to church. I am not a natural-born evangelist, okay? I'm actually an introvert. I am what I call a learned extrovert. In other words, I've learned how to be an extrovert, okay? And I've learned how to be an evangelist. And you know what? I love being an evangelist. I do. There is no thrill that compares to leading another person into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Man, just one of those can set my heart on fire all week long. I think in the 10 years that we pastored New Life, I led about 200 people or so to Christ. I love it. I love it. But it's not natural for me. I met a lot of people in that process who refused just out and out refused. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I've been saved by the blood. I will not go to church. Why? Well, you don't know what happened to me. I'll bet I do. They no longer participate as part of the fellowship of believers. Now, if the offense they experience is not dealt with, then they will continue in it. And eventually, they'll come to the point of what Jesus called hatred here. Now, again, hatred sounds extreme, mostly because we don't really understand what hatred means. We equate hatred with this violent emotional response, don't we? I hate you. That's what we think when we think of hatred. But let me kind of redefine hatred in a biblical sense. You remember the story of Absalom and Amon from the Old Testament? Absalom... His sister Tamar, raped by Amon. Bad situation. 
This is what it says in 2 Samuel 13, 22. It says, Absalom never said a word to Amon, either good or bad. He hated Amon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. While hatred can be violent emotion, it can also simply mean a loss of love, an indifference to another person. Think about this. It brings a new perspective to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, he who is angry with his brother without cause shall be subject to judgment. He who hates his brother without cause shall be subject to judgment. He who is indifferent toward his brother he whose love is cold towards his brother. That's, man, that brings a whole new level of meaning to that idea, doesn't it? What we have here from Jesus in his own words is a dire warning. These people, believers, because that's the context, folks, who live in offense, who choose not to forgive, will eventually betray those they are supposed to have a relationship, the body of Christ, the church. And if they continue in this fence, they will lose their love. Their hearts will grow cold. It's then that they become fertile ground for the deception of the enemy. They justify their choices to live offended by inventing all manner of untruth about those they have had relationships with. You've seen it. You've heard it. You may even have lived it. I did. Like I said, I got saved when I was 16 years old when I met those kids from YWAM and I got on fire for Jesus. Man, I was on fire. I went away to college at 17, went up to Oregon to pursue a degree in music. I took with me a box this big of gospel tracks from the church that I'd have been attending. They just gave me the whole box. Here, have fun. And I was determined to set that campus on fire for Jesus. I was determined to convert everybody in my dorm I learned very quickly that I did not want to be on the second and the third floor of my dorm because it smelled like pot all the time. I got involved in the local churches. I wanted to see God move in the local churches. I put on a concert. You know what happened? The church I put the concert on, even though they were all the same denomination, the only people who attended was that church. You know what I found out? The rest of the churches weren't talking to one another. They had offense against one another. Same denomination, all within 20 miles of one another, less than that, 10 miles actually, of one another. They, they wouldn't talk to one another. They wouldn't attend one another's services, even if it was a, a special thing. They were connected to me, but they would not connect to one another, and therefore they wouldn't come. You know what happened? I came home from my freshman year of college totally disillusioned about the church. And for six months of my life, I went cold. I went cold. I wouldn't go to church. I didn't want anything to do with those people. I was offended at their lack of love for one another, at their lack of forgiveness for one another. And I took that offense and I let it feed my soul. And I stopped going to church. Now, I didn't agree to preach on this subject of offense so I could make anybody feel guilty or feel bad. But you know what? I wouldn't be surprised this morning if while you're sitting there, the Holy Spirit hasn't been tugging at you maybe a little bit. Maybe you're sitting there. Maybe you came in this morning. You didn't know what I was going to preach on. But maybe the Holy Spirit got you here by appointment this morning because there's been something in you that you've been holding back. And it's interfered with your relationship with people and with God. And you're in danger of your love growing cold. Maybe not towards the person sitting next to you, but maybe towards someone else. Maybe a family member, somebody else that's a part of your life. If you've been holding on to it more than a minute, you've held on to it too long. Amen. Offense should hit us like water off a duck's back. Okay? And you know why it doesn't? Because we haven't really found our identity in Christ. We're still dependent on our identity from other people. 
This is one of the things my wife and I teach in our freedom class. Identity is so important. Folks, if my identity is wrapped up in what you think of me and you diss me, you offend me, crushed. I am crushed. One of the things I had to learn as a church planner and a pastor is how to live free of my people. I used to tell them from the pulpit, you know what? At some point, I will offend you. I will either say something you don't agree with, I will do something you don't think I should have done, or I will fail to do one of those things. But one way or another, at some point, I will fail you. And you know what? At that point, you have a choice. You can pack up your bags and move along to the next church. Or you can come to me and we can love through it. Some people chose to leave. Most people came and worked through it. I will never forget my, my first ministry in Morgan Hill. I was just the, the music minister, youth pastor of the church at the time. And we were putting on a big musical and, and, and you know, things were just chaotic. And um, we used to do Broadway style musicals. I mean, Broadway style musicals, the lights, the everything, you know? And my little assistant, this, this, this little, little lady, she looked like a little bag lady, okay? She's this like kind of portly little girl that, uh, lady, she was old enough to be my mom, uh, that, that just kind of followed me around with a pen and paper help my wife and I do all of the detailed work kind of thing. And I was so caught up in what I was doing that morning, and I just dismissed her. She brought something to me. said, I don't have time for that right now. That's not important. I just took her identity and flushed it down the toilet. I had to go to her with tears and begging on my knees to apologize and to repent of what I had done. You know what? I won her back. She wasn't even going to come back to the church. But I won her back because she said, nobody's ever done that before. Nobody's ever treated me like that before. No one has ever come in and apologized. She's just been pushed aside because she kind of looked like a little bag lady. She kind of looked like somebody that was insignificant. You know what I found out about that lady? She was brilliant. This is a straight-A student in college. She was brilliant. I had no idea how smart she was. She's smarter than I was. But I had to humble myself and deal with that offense. And some of you need to humble yourself this morning if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and deal with whatever offense has happened. You cannot continue to live that way. Why? Because I want to take you back to the beginning of the sermon. Chad has been talking about evangelism, and he's been talking about it, at least in part, about how we love one another. We want people to come And to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it will happen as we love one another. If we truly fall in love, if we do what Samuel did with these ladies, if we truly invest in one another's life, if we truly pursue relationship with one another in the Holy Spirit, you won't be able to keep them out of the doors of this church. They'll be knocking the doors down. We won't have to go out and and use gospel tracts. They'll be coming to us. Why? Because I want what you have, just like I did when I was a kid. I met those YWAMers, and I said, I want what you have. I don't have that. I can't be satisfied with religion anymore. I need relationship with Jesus. I need what you have. As a church, we need to be desperately, passionately in love with one another. The vision we have to reach this town will not happen if we hold back. We simply cannot afford to live offended toward anyone, especially one another. And I mean the body of Christ. You know, maybe you ended up at this church because something happened at another church. If you came here offended and you don't deal with that offense, you will leave offended. I watched it happen. As a church planter, we attract a lot of offended people. A lot of people are looking to trade churches because they're not happy. Two things come to a church plant. Offended people and wounded people. My wife and I used to kid. We're running a mass unit, not a church. It felt that way. It really did. If they weren't offended, they were hurt. One of the two. They had been offended. Listen, 
your freedom from that offense. Jesus is passionate about that. It is his mission to make sure that we live free from offense. If my identity is wrapped up in who God says that I am, I am not going to be easy to offend. You know why? Because that identity never changes because God never changes. It's what Romans 8.31 means when it says, if Christ be for me, who can be against me? Knowing who I am in Christ makes letting go of offense easy. In fact, it makes holding on to offense difficult. So what do we do? If we live offended, our passion will wane. The enemy will succeed. Don't let the enemy intimidate you out of your freedom. An Arab chief tells the story of a spy who was captured and then sentenced to death by a general in the Persian army. This general had a strange custom of giving condemned criminals a choice between the firing squad and the big black door. As the moment of execution drew near, the spy was brought to the Persian general who asked the question, what will it be, the firing squad or the big black door? The spy hesitated for a long time. It was a difficult decision. He ended up choosing the firing squad. Moments later, shots rang out confirming his execution. The general turned to his aide and said, they always prefer the known way to the unknown. It is characteristic of people to be afraid of the undefined. Yet, we gave him a choice. The aide said, well, then what lies behind the big black door? Freedom, replied the general. I've only known a few brave enough to go for it. Folks, freedom awaits for anybody who's willing to take the leap and let go of offense. I want to invite you this morning to do just that. If you would like to shed the weight you've been carrying around, an offense that you've been harboring, then I want to pray for you. But listen, I can't do this for you. As much as I might want your freedom, one of the things I've learned about this is you got to want it more than me. This has got to be something you want to pursue because the enemy is going to try to convince you to hold on to it. And even when you've dropped it, he's going to try to tell you that you didn't. Folks, this morning is about wiping the smile off the enemy's face. It's time to have passion for God and one another increase, even explode in this house. Freedom is about the restoration of intimacy with God and with his people. Your freedom is God's plan for your life. Don't let the enemy and his trap of offense hold you back. I'm going to pray for you. But after I get done praying, I'm also going to invite you to come up to the altar and to deposit your offense here. Trust me, the altar can handle it. It's got broad shoulders. His name is Jesus. He can handle it. He can take it. But you've got to let it go. And you've got to let it go for the right reasons. You've got to let it go because you know that if you don't, your love will grow cold. If you don't, well, they'll never break down the doors of this church trying to get in. And you know what? That really is God's plan for their life. We don't want to be the ones that stand in the way of that. It's high time that the church stop taking offense with one another. Do you know we have, just in the Baptist denomination, over 1,500 different denominations that are all Baptist? Why? Every one of them started out of a fence, and they held on to that fence. And I will tell you what, anything born out of a fence will continue in offense. That's why people who come offended leave offended. Unless you deal with it, It doesn't go away. It only gets worse. The walls get higher, the walls get thicker, and the love grows colder. And we might look good on the outside, but inside, we are what Jesus called whitewashed tombs. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Daddy, Abba, 
we as a people need you. You're a good father and you have good plans for us. And it's high time that we stepped forward and told the enemy what for. That we extricate ourselves from this trap of offense. Father, for every person in this room that's holding on to offense, and I think almost all of us have experienced this, I'm pretty sure all of us have. But if we've held on to it, Father God, this morning's about letting go. I pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, as, as his presence is known in this place, you would bring conviction where it belongs, Father God, that no one would sit here and feel guilty about trying to protect themselves, but would realize that that protection isn't protection. It's isolation. And that they would come and they would leave the offense at the altar today. Only by your spirit, only by your power are we set free. So, Father God, that is my prayer this morning. Holy Spirit, that you would be in this place in such a manifest way that we cannot, cannot, cannot continue to hold on to this stuff. That we leave it at the altar. And when we turn around, we embrace one another with a love that's on fire for Jesus and for one another. Don't let us be the church at Ephesus. Don't let the church continue to have its love grow cold. We need a fresh fire. We need a fresh wind to blow through this place called the Holy Spirit and bring to us a passion for Jesus and one another. So that's what I'm praying for this morning, Father God. I will not settle for less because you don't settle for less. This is your passion, Jesus. It's all over scripture. There's no question about this. It is your passion. In the powerful name of Jesus. I declare freedom in this place. And everybody that agrees said, Wow, that, well, that, was, that was bad. Everybody who agrees says, You know what amen means, right? So be it. Be it in that fashion, in that manner. So be it. You just proclaimed it over yourself. So be it. If you have business to do with the Lord this morning in the way of dropping off your offense, I invite you to come. Just come. Come to the altar. Let it go. Let's stand up. I want to make room for allowing people to get out of the pews. Come forward. Help us to lay down our offense. Help us to extricate ourselves from the trap of the enemy and to move forward in passion and in love with one another. Father, bless these people. Your plans for us are good. Plans to give us hope in a future and hope in a future starts with getting rid of this stuff and stepping back into the intimacy you called us to. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you're doing in this place. Go ahead. You just, you just keep laying it there. If you got to do it over and over again, that's fine. Forgiveness sometimes isn't easy. Letting go sometimes isn't easy. Prayer team, if I could, I'd, I'd like to invite you to come forward as well lay your hands on these people and you help them. You pray for them. For the rest of you that are standing there, 
be in prayer for these people. Love says, I care about what's happening up here. And the more you pray for them, the more you will fall in love with them. It's one of the principles of prayer. The more we pray for one another, the more we fall in love with one another. We can't help it. It's how God connects our hearts to one another. anybody's left you're all just loving on them doing some amazing things through this church. Let's just keep falling in love with one another. Let's just keep pursuing hard after Jesus. Have a great morning.